I remember saying, I, I'm going to have to go get help. And he, and he stopped me dead in my tracks. And he said, Terry, if you, if you go ask for help, you might as well divorce me because you will ruin me because people will know that I have a problem and it will ruin my career. So it stopped me dead in my tracks. I have let the officer down. I have let the, the police department down. I have let I've let the community down and I have let myself down. I might as well kill myself. And she's sound asleep. And I had this feeling come over me that I was standing in the presence of God and that his angels had put their wings over those kids' ears and they slept through every bit of that. The crime scene investigators had to come in, of course, uh, shoot photographs of him, he was elected DA. He, you know, they, it, it was chaos. I have no friends. And that's what Hallie started saying. My youngest daughter's name was Hallie, and I always say it, she's not gone, she's just not here. So I always encourage people to say her name, Hallie, to ask about the dead child. Don't want to talk about it because they're afraid they're going to cause pain. No, it's like a, it's like a warm blanket of comfort and joy when I hear my daughter's name. I always say, say their name, Hallie. It's just so wonderful. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assist the Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community. And now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but we get strong. We have differences. We don't always agree. And we all make mistakes. But together we can grow. We can heal. And we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. To all who walk the dark path, and to those who walk in the sunshine, but hold out a hand in the darkness to travel beside us. Brighter days are coming. Clearer sight will arrive. And you will arrive too. No, it might not be forever. The bright moments might be for a few days at a time. But hold on for those days. Those days are worth the dark. Jenny Lawson. Welcome back, friends. This is Joe. Today I am surrounded with some amazing people. I will introduce two new voices you haven't heard before as hosts to help me present today's incredible story to you. This show's mission is to help change a culture. Break stigmas. Soften hard conversations about the struggle we all have with mental health. This is not just for first responder community. 
the story is for every human that wakes up, steps onto the roller coaster of life to experience that great joy, sadness, success, and failures. Today's guest has experienced success at every level, personal and professional. She is a wife to Tom. She has experienced the joy of being a mother to four beautiful daughters, experienced the rewards of being a grandparent to two precious souls. This guest has been recognized as a Texas super lawyer for the past five years. She graduated from Texas A&M School of Law in 2009 and is the founder and owner of the law offices of Terry Bentley Hill. This guest defines success. However, when this story ends, and you hear the Never Give Up On You song play, and you process what you just have heard, you will fully understand her grief, the resiliency, her passion, and her dedication to her continued efforts to spread the message of not minding your own business. It's the ATO's honor to welcome Dallas criminal defense attorney, Terry Bentley Hill, to the stage. Terry, Welcome to the ATL stage. Thank you, Joe. I'm glad to be here. Very nice to meet you. And it's right on the heels of uh, the Texas Rangers winning the World Series. We're all in a good mood, aren't yep, we? We're in, I'm wearing my Nolan jersey, and you have on the. You somehow got your hands on a, a World Series champions jersey, which I haven't made it to Academy yet. But uh, I will. mine's free. Oh, was wow. yours free? No, no. <laughs> this this jersey's from '93, and it's still holding together. But yeah, it wasn't free. Yeah, um, we're going to have our picture taken. No, oh, absolutely. Before we get into Terry's story, uh, we're going to welcome on some guest co-hosts. Johanna Winder, uh, she is one of our ATL counselors, and this is the first time she's been on um, been on the mic with us. Thanks so much for having me. Tell the listener a little bit about yourself. I'm a licensed professional counselor, and I have a private practice called Brevira Counseling, where I um, only work with first responders and military veterans. Um, I specialize in post-traumatic stress disorder and trauma. Um, I'm also married to a police veteran, so I have a personal connection to this community as well as a professional connection. I love what I do. I have my practice here in the Dallas area, and I also work remotely with uh, responders and veterans in Washington State, where I'm originally from. Perfect. Now you're a Texan. That's right. Happy right. to be here. And we also have, back to the mic, uh, Lieutenant, my boss, my big boss, Lieutenant Lissette Rivera. Lieutenant, thanks for coming. Thanks for the invite, Joe. You're always invited. I mean, you're just a few uh, doors down from me here in the office. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So, um, we're about to get into Miss Hill's episode, and I have to warn people we're going to be hitting on some uh, heavy topics, um, so I am going to put a little warning uh, label on this episode before it airs, because, um, you know, we are going to tackle the uh, the issue of suicide, and it's, it's it might uh, be heavy for a lot of people. Yeah, I, and I'm glad you did that, Joe, because I, I, I talk about this a lot in public forums, and I, I'm always uh, aware that some of the things I could be talking about, which are mental health issues, substance use disorders, and, and then suicide, can really trigger 
people in the audience. So I think it's a good idea that you do prepare people uh, that they are going to hear some tough stuff. Yeah, I, I told, I've told uh, several people that we're going to be recording this episode because we've had this plan for months, and that's usually how we have to plan these out uh, because, I mean, you're, and you're extremely busy. And lately I've been very busy. But everybody's like, well, you got to put a warning on before the yeah. I said, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm, I need to. Right. So are you ready to dive into it? Sure. We're going to start from the top. We're going to get to the heavy stuff, but I want to start off and um, – get into your grad graduate from Richardson high. Yes. I I, I bicentennial senior. So right. if anybody can figure that out, they'll know exactly how old I am. <laughs> we'll have some uh, listeners. Um, we'll do doing some math and, uh, and Google and plus Richardson. Can you kind of describe where that, where that city is in relation to Dallas? Cause we have, we have listeners from outside the country and I just kind of want them to understand where Richardson, Texas is at. Sure. Richardson is the uh, is a suburb of, of Dallas. It's directly north of Dallas. It is, if you're familiar with the Dallas area, it's north of 635. And um, it is squeezed in between Dallas and a little place called Plano. And when I was growing up, Plano was a farm community, no longer a farm community. And Richardson was a, and it still is a very good school district. And it's, it's huge. It's very diverse now. Uh, I think that even in one of the high schools, there are 54 languages that are spoken um, in those high schools. It's, it's an incredible place to grow up. I'm, I'm very fortunate that I grew up and went and graduated from Richardson High School. Golden Eagles. It's, it's grown so much. Just that whole area, even like Frisco and Plano, uh, it's, it's uh it's a suburb of Dallas, but it is a it's increasingly growing every year. It it I mean a lot of the people they don't want to live in Dallas and it's just a good community to to live in. I don't live far from there. Right. So you left you left Richardson High and you go into college. Where'd you go to college? I went to the the University of Texas in Austin and Hook them. Uh, yeah, right. And I um <clears throat> I, I always wanted to go to the University of Texas. I, I started really when I was in the uh, when I was twelve in the seventh grade. I wanted to. I fell in love with the football team, and that's why you go to go to college is because you fall in love with the football team, right? And so I decided when I was twelve that I was going to go to the University of Texas and set my my sights there. I really don't think I applied anywhere else but UT. So I don't know what I would be doing if I hadn't gotten in. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure some uh, another college would have gladly taken you. Why did you pick broadcast journalism? Well, that is a great question. I, I started following the football team, like I said, when I was 12 years old. And I wanted to be a sports reporter. Now, mind you, I didn't graduate from the University of Texas until uh, 1980. There weren't female broadcasters, no. uh, sports broadcasters. Phyllis George had just started um, working for CBS, and so she was the very first. And but I, that's what I wanted to do, and I've always been involved in, in athletics myself. And so once I started following the football team, I thought I'm going to go to UT. I'm going to be a broadcast journalist, and I'm going to cover 
sports. And so when I graduated, I sent tapes out all over the, the, you know, the entry level markets. And I even said, Hey, look, I want to, I want to do sports. And, you know, they looked at me like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. We'll, we'll have a woman doing sports for us. Never. And so I, um, I've, I've just always wanted to do that. And I always enjoyed doing that. And I've got a little side story to tell you about that as well. Let's hear it. I, I, my first job was uh, in Amarillo, Texas. And the reason I got my job in Amarillo is because the, there had been two reporters and a cameraman who had just been fired because they took the, sta- the station camera and made an adult film with the station camera and got caught. And so they fired them. So they were looking for new young reporters. And I happened to turn my, um, I, I applied at just the right time. Amarillo, Texas was like Alaska, as far as I was concerned. I had never been there. I had no desire to go there because I know it snowed in Amarillo. And I just, you know, I I knew nothing about that, that community. But I went up there at 22 and uh, started working for the CBS affiliate in Amarillo. And I was a general assignments reporter. And I worked the late shift. So I worked from 3 until 11. And Roger Staubach was coming to town to shoot a, a commercial at one of the, the grocery stores in Amarillo. And the sports director said, Terry, would you go interview Roger Staubach? Just ask him a few questions. You know, he was a Dallas Cal. I said, you don't have to tell me who he is. Right. I know exactly who he is. I followed him his entire career. I started going to the Dallas Cowboy football games when I was five in the Cotton Bowl. So I said, I know everything about Roger. So a camera uh, person and I went, and 45 minutes later, I was through interviewing Roger Staubach, and he was kind enough to answer all my questions. So I take my tape back, I give it to the sports director, and I go on about my business, and the next day, the, the news director called me in and said, Terry, would you be interested in doing sports? And I thought, that's that's your dream that's what i want to do it's my dream but at the same time i was covering the police beat and the courthouse and there was nothing more interesting to me than the police beat and the courthouse so i said well can i do both and he said no you have to choose Mm. well i chose the police beat and the courthouse why well because i i was just so fascinated sitting in there watching watching this whole criminal justice system play out in front of me and i would have this i would have an adrenaline uh, release and i just i don't know it's one of those forks in the road that i thinking i was thinking if i had chosen to do sports i would have been one of the very first female sports announcers or reporters period and no telling what my career would have been but you know i'm i'm where i'm supposed to be well and get into that that the criminal justice system and also the law enforcement, it kind of foreshadowed to where you're at now, but it, right. it took a while to get there, but that was kind of uh, steering you down that road. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I, I was very fortunate, if that's the right word. I've had some incredible experiences as a reporter covering uh, crime. And, and then starting from the very beginning, 
to where I go to a scene, crime scene, all the way until the end of trial. Yeah. And I, I so I, I, I it was almost it, it was almost an unorganic experience for me because in in fact one of the the most interesting things that uh, broke this story is um, I, I work Saturday mornings. And I had great relationships with officers that I worked with. And so I went in, and the dispatcher was a friend of mine. And I went in and just said, hey, you know, did this every every Saturday I went, I, I went into work. I said, anything happened overnight? And he paused, and he said, well, you know, and the night before was Halloween. And I, he said, well, you know, there was a break-in at the convent um, north of town. And I said, well you know, it was Halloween, you know, is it, is it was, is there anything unusual about that besides the fact that it's the convent and there was a break in? And he said, well, the chief is there. And when I, he said, the chief is there, I got in my van and drove straight to that convent. And I drove up on a crime scene because there is a, um, a, a, a weapon in the, the parking lot where I'm walking around and I see a broken window, and I see the police chief walking, and I see police officers everywhere, and then the DA comes. Uh, so it was a pretty big story, and what had happened is on Halloween, a 17-year-old had broken in to the convent and um, attacked one of the sisters, a 76-year-old um, sister, and he, he took her life. I mean, he, he raped her and murdered her. And so I was able to follow that trial from the very get-go until he was convicted of capital murder. You say you the the DA was at the scene, and that's kind of kind of segue into how you met. Can you kind of go into that? Yes, and the significance of the DA is that that DA was my husband for eleven years. So, yes, he was the elected, the youngest elected district attorney in the state of Texas at the time. And he was a superstar. He had been a state representative two terms prior to being elected district attorney. And he was in his early 30s when he was elected. And he was the most incredible speaker, lawyer, public official that I have ever been around. And he was uh, well-liked in this community, clearly. And he really felt like he had a, he had a purpose to serve the, the, the community of Amarillo and, um, and, and Claude because he was a 47th district attorney and, and so he had two counties. He had, he had Potter County and Armstrong County. And so he took it very, very seriously and very personally. And he tried cases. He tried capital murder cases. And so that's how I met him was I was covering these, these, uh, these cases. And uh, that's how I got to know him. You and got to know just, him. Yeah, blown away by him. How, how long did y'all, when did y'all start dating, not shortly after that? Or did you just kind of get to know him gradually and then it evolved into a relationship and into marriage? Yeah, that's it. We okay. we dated for a while, not for very long, as a matter of fact. And um, we we were married in 1983, so about three years. I'd known him for about three years, and then we got married in 1983. Well, knowing him and looking on the outside, it's you know it's like a 
it's like looking into a snow globe. You know, it's snowy and you're looking inside, but once you become part of that snow globe and you're in the middle of it, you're actually seeing it from the home life of how those cases affecting. What were you seeing of the weight of the uh, of that trauma that that he was going through working those type cases? Well, it even starts before that. Uh, I always I need to preface this by saying I went, I grew up um, and, and my family didn't drink. Hmm. And so I had no personal experience with alcohol, and I wasn't a, a drinker in high school. But that all changed when I went to the University of Texas. And, I mean, people drank, and they drank to get basically drunk. They didn't social drink. It wasn't that kind of a deal. I mean, it's a college life. No big deal. I mean, that's that's what I was used to. So when, we, when my husband-to-be... Uh, we, when, we, when we were dating, we'd go out, and he and he began drinking. Uh, he didn't stop. I might have a few drinks and stop, but he didn't. And he would drink, and he would get drunk. But I didn't think anything about it because that was my normal. And so, what I didn't know—excuse me—what I didn't know at the time was that he um, he. he he had a, a problem with alcohol, whatever you want to call that. I don't know if he, if he had uh, an addiction to alcohol at that time, but he had a problem with alcohol. And what I have learned and the way I describe a problem with alcohol is if alcohol use causes a problem in your personal or professional life, then you have a problem with alcohol. And that is what was, uh, you know, that's what I had noticed even before we got married, but I didn't know what to call it. I didn't know what I was dealing with. So, um, you know, it's easy for me now uh, years later. And when I'm talking about years, I'm talking almost 30 years later. I've had uh, hindsight is 2020 and I've had a whole lot of therapy and and uh, work around all of this so I know so much more now so I try to put myself back into that place as a 20 something year old who is dealing with someone um, who might have had a substance use um, disorder but I didn't know what to call it had no idea what it was I just knew that there was something that wasn't right so to go back to your question uh, once we married it, the 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 as we all know that alcohol uh, alcohol use alcoholism is progressive unless you address it you get help or you treat it well because he was a public official and nobody neither one of us really understood what was going on here that he just drank and he got drunk and he did it almost every single night. Because he was a public official, we we didn't say anything to anybody. We had to keep it a secret. And not only did did we keep it a secret, our insides were not matching our outsides. We were we were living in the shadows a uh, uh, shadow of shame, and uh, it all uh, took place behind our closed doors. We you know I thought. Um, I thought that if I ever reached out to anyone, friends or family, that I could ruin his career because I was, you know, it was a small community 
Um, there's a lot of shame that goes along with um, a substance use disorder. And he, um, and you know, he, uh, I remember saying, I, I'm going to have to go get help. And he, and he stopped me dead in my tracks. And he said, Terry, if you, if you go get, ask for help, you might as well divorce me because you will ruin me because people will know that I have a problem and it will ruin my career. So it stopped me dead in my tracks. Terry, what did you notice about, you said at first you didn't think anything of his alcohol use. It was normal to you. And then you started to realize it was a problem. What did you notice about how that matched up with the stress of his career? Um, You also mentioned he took his work very personally. And I wonder if you saw some of that with the increasing alcohol use and other struggles he was having. Yeah, definitely. I, like I say, all the time, we, we don't know what we don't know. And our normal, our normal changes incrementally. And so as the, as time went on, and the the drinking increased the depression increased my uh, it just became slowly more and more normal if it had all happened at once i would have gone whoa you know we what's going on here but because it's so slow we become adjusted to it and our, it becomes our new normal i'll never forget you know talk about the language of depression and uh, my, my former husband was never diagnosed with any kind of mental health um, condition because he he would he never went to see a doctor because he didn't want I guess maybe the answer or, or he didn't want to fix the problem I don't know but he never went to a doctor and he was so we don't even have a diagnosis I'm looking back now going well duh uh, I know he had depression. I know he had episodes of, of mania because when he would get ready to try a case, he'd stay up for three nights in a row just riding on a legal pad, riding, 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 riding. And I thought, is this how you try a case? Because you have to stay up three nights in a row to write in your closing argument. I, I mean, I know now that he had some, he had a mental health condition, not exactly sure what, but he definitely was medicating it with alcohol. And um, he telegraphed to me early on, very early on, that he, he had suicide ideation and severe depression. And uh, specifically, uh, he tried a, a capital murder case where there was an officer shot and killed on Christmas, eve- uh, Christmas night years and years and years ago. And he took that very personally. And the, the shooter was a 17-year-old kid. And his brothers were, it was th- there were three of them. And the two brothers were tried first. And they, they, they were tried on capital murder but got life. Well, they were handcuffed. They had handcuffs behind their back. So they didn't pull the trigger. We know they didn't pull the trigger, but the 17-year-old brother did, and he was tried in a separate trial. And uh, by this time, my former husband was very uh, invested in this case. He was close to the widow. He was close to the officer, the obviously police officers in the community, and he was he just he was going to get justice for this officer. And um, 
this kid takes a stand, and back then you could get the death penalty on a 17-year-old. You cannot get a uh, death penalty any longer on a 17-year-old. I mean, he got up there and he looked 13 years old. And the jury, uh, you know, of course, my former husband was asking for the death penalty, and the jury came back with life. And afterwards, he says to me, I have let everyone down. He said, I've let the officer's wife down. I have let the officer down. I have let the, the police department down. I have let, I have let the community down, and I have let myself down. I might as well kill myself. And I looked at him, and I thought, wow, that's pretty extreme. You know, you did the best you can, but see, my brain didn't work that way. And so I didn't know what the significance of those words were. I didn't know that there was a language of depression and that he spoke a language of depression all through our marriage. But because I didn't know that language and didn't, my brain didn't work the same way, I missed it. And I'm not being mean to myself. I'm not beating myself up. I just didn't know. And you don't know what you don't know. And I think as the spouse of somebody who is saying those things, of course, you don't want that to be true. And so it would be so easy to dismiss it or to think, oh, he's being hyperbolic. He's in a bad place right now. He'll get over it. He's just talking. And it would be really easy not to ask more questions or take it seriously. Right. Exactly. I would imagine that it's also a topic that was not discussed during that time. You did not speak about sadness, depression, pain. It's something that you kept behind closed doors. Without a doubt. I think it was definitely seen as a weakness. And, uh, you know, really, especially in his in his position, the last thing he needed to to be perceived as is a as a weak or ineffectual district attorney and or person for that matter. And I, I, it was it was a much different time back in the in, in the eighties for sure than it is now. Well, mental health uh, is more talked about now, and and that's one of the missions of this. Um, we started up this show to 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 bring awareness, to educate, and motivate, inspire. However you want to look at her, or, or just you might be entertained one day by uh, some of the uh, shows that we have. But you talk about. He did not want to go to a counselor to get diagnosed because he he knew what was going on, and you just don't want to hear it. And if I don't hear it, it isn't true. And when you're told, he he throws it out to you that I'm thinking about this or I should do this, you're hoping that it's it's just him angry and he's in the moment. And he's just saying words as opposed to he is laying. He's he's it's an outcry, but you just like you said, you did not understand the language of that outcry. And we talk about secondary trauma a lot here, and there's a lot of misconceptions about in the first responder world that if you weren't there at the scene, you weren't the boots on the ground uniform that showed up and you actually saw the dead body or you saw the the uh, fatality accident with the, with the, the mangled body and the family uh, that, that has passed away, tragically, that you you're not as affected if you get pick up a case later, like a detective gets the case and may, they may not have seen the scene, but they have to watch the body cam. They have to comb through the physical evidence. Sometimes they have to watch the autopsies uh, of these uh, victims. And I believe that that goes on with the, 
the judicial side and the prosecutorial side because they have to comb over all of this evidence. They have to watch all this video. And being the main DA, you have so much pressure and you want to get justice. You want to do a good job. It, the secondary trauma is real in that. And Johanna, can you talk about that? Sure. So um, secondary trauma is when an individual is exposed to other people who've been traumatized, and often it's job related, but they weren't themselves the direct victims of um, the trauma. And the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is the book that us mental health professionals use when we're looking at diagnosing someone, um, we actually have a category within post-traumatic stress disorder to talk about secondary trauma, and it's often first responders, but it can include mental health professionals who hear the details of trauma. It can include attorneys and detectives who weren't necessarily there, uh, medical professionals, again, who weren't necessarily there, but who uh, talked to the victim, who heard the details, who had to comb through those details and hear all about, um, you know, see photos of all the horrific things that happened to people. And uh, symptoms of secondary trauma can look just like post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, it's not an actual diagnosis, secondary trauma. If somebody did experience secondary trauma and they're um, showing signs of PTSD, I would still diagnose PTSD. Um, some of those symptoms can look like um, having intense intrusive reminders, so memories, flashbacks, nightmares, um, avoiding or not wanting to think about or talk about the details of what they saw or what they experienced. Uh, it can include negative thoughts about oneself, other people, the world, uh, feelings of sadness, anger, horror, fear, and hyperarousal or being keyed up. And as humans, we are wired to be resilient. Most of the time when we experience something traumatic, we don't develop PTSD. We naturally recover. But there is a cumulative effect when somebody um, throughout their career is experiencing hundreds, sometimes thousands of traumatic events over and over. There's a cumulative effect and it can make it so much uh, harder for somebody. Their struggle can be so much greater. And in you know, my job, sometimes when somebody comes to me and they've been through so many traumatic events, it's hard sometimes to know where do we even begin because you've gone through so much trauma and you might not even know what it is that's bothering you because you've never unpacked it, you've never talked about it, and it's just years of it. Um, and there's also been studies that show that people who feel a lack of control over what they experience often are more likely to have PTSD. So what that can look like is, let's say somebody is on the scene of a crime and they're able to intervene and stop it from happening and they're able to, to save a victim. They might feel like they had more control over that than say a dispatcher who called it in but didn't ever get to hear how it resolved or see what happened. They just, they, they, are, did make sure that the officers are there and then they're on to the next call. And somebody in your husband's position, a DA, can have, um, in some experiences, they might feel like they have a lot of control when they're able to hold up justice and, and bring people to justice. They might also feel a complete lack of control when things don't go the way that they'd hoped. Right. Uh, you know, as somebody explained it to me uh, one time, is of course we have 
these experiences and it creates it creates energy in our body and that energy bounces around in our body until you actually can can process it or deal with it and oftentimes especially i know first responders and in the case uh, a lot of criminal lawyers whether a prosecutor or a defense attorney there's not a process of 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 decompressing of, of verbalizing it and that's why it's so important that the that officers uh firemen whatever there is an opportunity to decompress by verbalizing it so you can get that get that energy focused in the right direction and you know i'll never forget there was a, uh, a six-year-old who uh, was murdered another capital murder case that my husband tried and he we had a we we have we had four little girls in five years and when our third daughter was six years old this this little girl was murdered and thrown in a dumpster and he went to the autopsy and he watched this autopsy of this little six-year-old and i'll never forget when he came home he pulled our six-year-old and put her in his lap and the look on his face it was just like he was somewhere else it affected him so badly and what's so sad right now is that he struggled with this all by himself he was he was isolated and so alone and all of this pain that and 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 trauma that you're talking about that he experienced and he was never able to verbalize it or process it and i'm it makes me sad now even talking to you all thinking about all of that weight that he carried as a result of 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 his experiences and you know just as a reporter and i'd go on to on a car accident scenes or you know, a, a chase had ended up in the the death of a of a toddler, and I remember the shoe on the back of that car, that teeny little shoe, and I'll never forget that. Uh, but but as but I had a different way of, of of talking about it because, ironically, as a reporter, I had to talk about. It. I told that story, but you know, really, in his case, and I know in a lot of police officers' cases, there's just not that ability to necessarily talk about it get that released just from a clinical perspective that's a hundred percent spot on we need to talk about the things that hurt we need to be able to talk about these things and every time I meet with an officer firefighter somebody comes into my practice that's a big part of what we're doing is identifying who in your life can you talk to when you have a bad call when you have something terrible happen at work who can you go to besides besides me, your counselor? Who in your life can you go to because you can't and shouldn't have to deal with that all by yourself? Right, and and that's when when I have the opportunity to speak to to the district attorneys in the state, and I've spoken to, of course, our our district attorney here, John Cruzo, and and the Harris County District Attorney, and uh, several of them. I'll say uh, my recommendation um, is to have an ability for those prosecutors to deprogram and especially if you think about the ones who are doing child abuse and uh, sexual assaults and I mean just the things they see over and over again and our judges I mean our judges are seeing the, the photos I mean there's got to be a way for all, th- this community this criminal justice community 
to deal with the the horrors that you know we live with i'm glad you brought that up um I want to give him, you mentioned the Dallas DA and uh, Judge Cruzo and his administration. So Jennifer Moore, she's a DA, and she recently, she she listens to the show, and she heard one of our doctors, uh, Dr. T, talking about the uh, the trauma, and, and, and she knew what Dallas PD is doing here with our wellness unit. She and some other DAs got together, and it was a long road where they just finally launched officially uh, – September 29th and now they have a wellness unit and like ours they're going to be building it as they're as they're going along because that's how it should look it should evolve but at least they're doing something finally for their their employees to have to deal with this kind of trauma right you know uh for attorneys and and you all can certainly speak to the to uh, police officers and um you know firefighters but for for attorneys Suicide is the third leading cause of death behind heart disease and cancer. That is shocking to know that so many lawyers, the profession is really in a, in, in a really bad position. There is more depression with attorneys than any other profession. Um, like I said, you know, 11 to, from an old study, I think probably higher now, but from an old study, you know, 12% of, of attorneys have experienced suicide ideation uh, and 46% experience depression while they're practicing law sometime in their, and then anxiety is off the chart. I mean, we all have that, just that, that anxiety and that cortisol dumping in our, our bodies constantly. And that resistance leads to persistence. It just can change the wiring in our brain and become really the beast of depression. All right, Terry, um, we're finally going to get to uh, a critical incident. And this is where the, the warning uh, for this episode is going to come into play. I want you to talk about, as best as you can, Palm Sunday, 1995. My husband and I had been married for 11 years, and... The thing about trauma is it, it's almost like a tattoo on the brain. It's there and it doesn't always go away. And so I'm going to tell you, give you details of a, an event that, that occurred, you know, in 1995, you know, years and years and years ago. But I can tell you every detail of that event because I can remember it. It's tattooed on my, on my brain, but I can tell you that I have, I have talked about it so much that it certainly has an impact, but it doesn't send me back to that trauma place. If you know what I mean. So I, I don't have any problem telling you the details of what happened, but we had been married for 11 years. As I said before, neither one of us got any help. My family had no idea what was going on in, behind our closed doors. Friends, I never said a word to friends. And so uh, as things became more and more critical and worse, um, I finally said uh, with four little girls, 10, 8, 6, and barely 5, I can't do this anymore. Um, you know, when my husband would drive in that driveway and he had gone, he had left work and, and he went to a convenience store and he'd buy these, he'd buy two tall boys 
and drive around town until he had finished those tall boys and he'd drive into that driveway and I'd take one look at him with these little four little girls running around and I went ballistic. Uh, It is a family disease. Everyone in this family, anyone in everyone in our family was definitely affected by untreated alcoholism and um, I didn't know what I was dealing with I thought he was a jerk that he would not stop drinking that he would not he didn't love me enough not to drink and he didn't love these children enough I just I had no idea what I was dealing with and that he had a an addiction he had a a a disease as, as oftentimes people will call it and that he really had lost total control over his alcohol use. And so, but when he, he came, he would come in and I could see it in his eyes that he had been drinking. I mean, I'd go ballistic. And there were times when I'd say, you're out of here. You pack your bags, you get out of here. We're n- you're not living here anymore. I can't live like this. And I'll never forget our oldest daughter uh, one time just threw herself on the kitchen floor and just said, mommy, please don't make daddy go please don't make him go. And I mean, it, I stopped dead in my tracks again, and it just ripped my heart out. I thought, what is, what, what are we doing to these children? And so as things, uh, as things got worse and worse, he started drinking at uh, the office. There had been a removal suit filed against him because he, um, because he had had a, an accident uh, hit and run uh, vehicle, and it, I mean things were it's unraveling. Unraveling, and I had finally said I can't do this anymore. Uh, we had uh, separated. We had been separated for eight months, and on Palm Sunday, uh, basically, um, he, he. I guess it was a perfect storm of events. And he, with the, with the accident, uh, with a removal suit, he was he felt like he was losing his family. I mean, it was a combination of things. I mean, if he's too bad he's not here to talk about it because uh, this is all my speculation. Because the only person here who could actually talk tell us what happened is not here. I mean, he's the only one who could really tell us what he was thinking. I all I know is that he had a panic attack he was experiencing all kinds of uh uh, just serious anxiety and panic and um he he had his solution to difficult times in his life whether it's our marriage or work or whatever was um suicide um and so on Palm Sunday, he came to our home, and I had just changed the locks to the to the house because things were getting dangerous. And he came to my. Um, it was on. Uh, I had just put the girls down. It was ten minutes uh, after I'd put all four of the girls, uh, my girls down, and he um, he was not. He was he was. We were separated. He was living in an apartment. And he drove over, and I was talking on the phone to a friend, and I, I heard a bang on my um, my door. And my bedroom door uh, opened up to my backyard. 
And so I pulled the cartons apart and I saw him sitting there and he had a pistol and that pistol was pointed at his chest. And so I call a friend of mine who happened to be a police officer and I said, oh my gosh, he is sitting here on this, on, on this step with a gun to his chest. What should I do? I mean, think about that. Just asking that question, I didn't know what to do because I knew that if I called the police, he was going to go to jail or something terrible was going to happen. And you don't want that to happen. So, I mean, I was paralyzed. I mean, what do I do? And she said, you hang up right now and call 911. And I still wasn't okay with that. So I was on the phone to another uh, friend of mine and she said, Terry... I said, uh, he's, you know, he's sitting, he, he's got a gun to his chest. He's, he's, he's sitting out here outside my bedroom door. And she said, Terry, if he were a perfect stranger, and if a perfect stranger was sitting on your step outside your bedroom door with a gun to his chest, what would you do? And I said, well, I would call the police. I'd call 911. She said, then you've answered your question. You know exactly what you have to do. So I call 911, I'm talking to them, I'm talking to the operator, and we got disconnected, so I had to call back, and at that time, um, he had copied, uh, the, the locksmith had given him the keys to our house, the brand new keys, and he had copied uh, one of the keys, and he put it in the lock in our door, and he opened it, and when he came in, I you can hear my voice on that 911 like oh my gosh this something terrible is going to happen and basically he um had 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 his gun it was a revolver and i'm i'm in the bathroom i had i had moved into the bathroom he was in the bedroom and i could hear him fiddling with that gun fiddling fiddling and i'm like what are you doing and he he just said who are you talking to and i said I wasn't going to tell him I was talking to 911 because I thought he was going to shoot himself right right then. Uh, but he did, um, uh, the police did come, and I was able to meet them because he couldn't get in the house. I'd already locked it down. I was trying to explain to him, but I was disoriented. I wasn't sure east from west, north to south. I, I was just saying, hey, the only door open to this house is in, in the backyard. And... Uh, to cut out some of the the details I was able to to run outside of our bedroom because I wasn't exactly sure how this was going to end up because I you hear it all the time that there you just I didn't know how it was going to happen I mean I was scared there was a gun there was um, I knew my husband had been drinking and so when I was able to run past him out into the backyard I ran right smack dab into a police officer boom because they were coming around the corner and so when and I told them I said there were four of them and I said when he sees you he's gonna he'll he'll shoot himself and sure enough and they knew him I mean I can remember them shaking I, I, I just never forget that and we could see him walk from the bathroom through the through the window and he sat down on a couch there right in our in, in, in our master bedroom and when the officers pushed that door aside sure enough he 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 pulled the gun and uh when he did it was by his side and he pointed it at them and i thought this is it they're gonna have to blow him away 
but he didn't. He turned the gun back towards himself, and they were just begging him, you know, put the gun down, put the gun down, and 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 he he fired, and in um in a, you know my first my first thought was my girls are going to run into this bedroom and they're going to see their father, and um. So I asked one of the officers to let me um, get into the into my hallway so I could block them. And um, I have to tell you this story because this is so important. Um, I walked down the hall to my youngest, my five-year-old. She was sleeping. They were all sleeping, and she was sound asleep. And I thought, well, you know, babies, they, the young kids can sleep through anything. And so I, that really didn't make an impression on me but I walked back down the hall and I went where my six-year-old in her room and she was sound asleep and I had this feeling come over me like this this isn't something else is going on something's going on here this is you know these children how could they be sleeping through this I mean that you officers are are shouting and a gun going you know in our home and I go down the hall and my 10-year-old who never goes to sleep she she was always had a sleeping you know issue and she sound asleep and I had this feeling come over me that I was standing in the presence of God and that his angels had put their wings over those kids ears and they slept through every bit of that the crime scene investigators had to come in of course uh, shoot photographs of him he was elected DA you know they it, it was chaos uh, the media went live from our front yard. Uh, officers had to put crime scene around our, ta- our our house to keep people from coming up. I mean, it was it it was it was a, it was quite a chaotic scene. And I just remember thinking to myself, God, please don't let these girls get up, wake up until I have the words to tell them what happened. And so when he when he died when he pulled that trigger um, part of me uh, died with him at that moment it was like I my life imploded right there on that that Palm Sunday of 1995 and the grief as a result of that is uh, indescribable. I'll never forget 10 days after he died. He died on, on April the 9th. 10 days after he died, I walked into my bathroom and I looked at myself in the mirror and I had a television on my countertop. And I'm, I look at myself in, in the mirror. I don't even recognize myself. I, 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 I looked so completely different. And I looked down at that TV and at that time, I see this building that's going up in smoke and it's collapsing in on it on on itself. And I'm, I, I'm, I acknowledge it, but I it really doesn't mean anything to me. I just th- think to myself, that building collapsing in Oklahoma City on April the 19th of 1995 is exactly what my life was like. It represented exactly what was going on in my life. I felt like my life was blowing up and collapsing in just like that building was. And I've always said, you know, I'd have been a, the perfect Timothy McVeigh juror because I was so engulfed in my own grief that I knew nothing about what was going on with that case, nothing about what was going on in the world. You're so 
devastated and consumed by your own grief and and plus I had to take care of four little girls too that it was just I look back and I think golly no telling what I really missed uh, because I was had to use all of my energy just to walk through that day or that minute and um, I moved my girls uh, to Dallas, back to Dallas, and this was in Amarillo, and I moved them back to Dallas. I had lived there for 15 years. All, all my daughters were born there, but I moved back to Dallas because my family and my friends were here, and plus I wanted some controlled anonymity. In Amarillo, they were all those little, poor little hill girls because their daddy had um, had 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 taken his life and, and while they were sleeping, you know, that night. And they'd go down the hall at school and people, you know, those poor little hill girls. And so I thought if we move someplace where we have a little bit of controlled anonymity, it would be better for them. But I had to get right into therapy. So they were the very first time after all of that time, um, I got into therapy. How did that look for you getting it starting off therapy? I, um, it was the best thing that I ever did. It was the hardest thing I ever did because there were years and years and years and years of stuff that I had to unpack and not just with my marriage and that, that experience, uh, of the, you know, of of my former husband's death, you know, in our home. Uh, but I had to unpack things even from when I was much younger and realize that I had my own mental health things that I had to address, like anxiety. I realize now that I, my, my anxiety manifests when I was five years old, and they say now it's seven, that kids are like emotional sponges, and they pick up on things that go on in your home and that energy, and, and they just absorb it. And so uh, anxiety starts to manifest at the age of seven. Well, mine was five, because I could hear my parents. They loved each other, but they may not have liked each other all the time. And I could, my bedroom was right across the hall from theirs. And so I could hear them. And I started biting my fingernails. And, you know, I had other, other things going on too. But I just, my insides did not match my outsides. But I didn't know all of that. I didn't know that. That's why I tell people, you oftentimes don't know you have a, a mental health issue until you don't. I didn't know that I had depression. And of course I had depression. I mean, Uh, after my husband's suicide oftentimes survivors have their own depression clearly because it it depleted all of the the neurotransmitters in my my brain I could not make the chemicals I needed I was uh, I I went into depression and I know what that looks like it is there is a physical reaction to depression that shows up behaviorally and my depression I could feel in my temples it was like somebody put a a vice on my head and was squeezing it I could feel it right in my temples and I would isolate I didn't want to talk to anyone I didn't want to answer the phone I wanted to stay away from people I didn't want to I I didn't have the energy I just wanted to lay on 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 my couch after I got my kids to 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 bed or to school and read and read and read. Thank God it wasn't a vodka bottle. If it had been a vodka bottle, it'd been a different story. 
Terry, I'm curious, how did you support your daughters as they were grieving um, when you were grieving yourself? I can't imagine, you know, I'm, I'm a mother too, and having to be there for my children at, as you're going through uh, possibly the hardest thing you've ever experienced. Great question, because it was really hard. It was the hardest thing that um, I've ever done because I was already dealing with my my own depression my own grief it and and still the trauma like you're talking about and and then I I watched them like a hawk because I was I I didn't know how this was going to impact them and it impacted them it definitely did it it, they first of all you know, I know what the biological markers are and how sometimes the substance use uh, disorders can can be, you know, can, can truly run in families, definitely. Um, mental health issues can run in family. And so I, I, I really watched them. And I can tell you, and it's their story to tell. And men, do they ever have some stories to tell? But they all experience depression they they it manifest in different ways but they all did they've all been in therapy they've all you know they've been treated for it and um and and it's something and I really want to say this too because I think a lot of people are really squirrely and goofy about medication and I want to just say this for some people they can do uh they can they can take up activities or behaviors that'll help them um with uh, you know with with their with their depression or whatever some people can exercise some people can um go to a beach and get a dopamine believe it or not release um there but there are some people like me whose brains cannot make the chemicals i i need we need uh the dopamine the serotonin the other the other very important chemicals and I know that because someone told me after uh, Danny died Terry depression is situational that once the situation abates and there's some time between you know the the event or whatever then the depression will take care of itself so that I didn't know any different I know I see you shaking your head Um, so I see my therapist and she tells me immediately uh, when I first started to see her, you know, you might consider going on medication because you've got depression. I'm like, no, 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 no. It's just situational. It'll be fine. I'll never forget at Christmas, five years after um, Danny died, and I went to her and I sat in front of her and I said, my life is a living hell. And she said, Terry, I'm going to tell you, if you don't get in your car and go to the psychiatrist and and it, get on medication I'm going to take you and put you in my car and drive you there because you don't have to live like this your brain does not have the reservoir you cannot you your chemi- the chemicals are not producing in your brain you've got to have help with a medication and I can tell you that once I started taking the medication my life got a lot easier 
and that's the way I, I put it. I mean, it's hard work being depressed. It is a lo- it is hard. And so once I when I went on the medication, I have no shame in telling people I'm on medication. It's just like if I had a headache, I take Tylenol. I don't care if you if I if you know I'm taking Tylenol for a headache. I take antidepressants because I need the help with the chemicals in my brain I pray I never plateau off of these antidepressants because they work perfectly for me I never want to go back to that place so medicine for me is is vital and for a lot of people and I you know I just really say that because a lot of people are very resistant to that but you might have to have it it's a medical condition if you have diabetes you're going to take insulin it's just that simple So at any rate, um, and I'm not exactly sure even where we were going with that. Um, We were talking about the how you actually look caring for your my our children, yeah, Yeah. your daughters, and how that looked. But I want to get into another critical incident and tragedy. Yeah. Now this is the this is the killer. This is the killer. like I said, I, I watched my girls very closely um, for any kind of signs of depression or even medicating with alcohol, you know, as they got older, because I, I, I knew what that looked like now. And uh, so uh, uh, they definitely went through their periods of depression. And it was interesting how really once once they started through puberty is when it really got bad i'm convinced that the hormones had something to do with that Uh, they already had the the conditional um elements but then the and the environmental elements but then they also had those hormonal changes that i think really uh exacerbated their their depression anxiety at any rate um so they've uh, my youngest, who was 14 at the time, she was definitely depressed, uh, and she spoke the language of depression. And when a what I have learned is when a person is experiencing depression, it is uh, it causes cognitive distortion in the frontal frontal uh, cortex, causes thinking errors. And that is what sometimes produces that language of everyone will be better off without me. I'm a burden to my family. And those are the language, that's the language I'm talking about. When when you hear things like that, I have no friends. And that's what Hallie started saying. My youngest daughter's name was Hallie, and I always say it, she's not gone, she's just not here. So I always encourage people to say her name, Hallie, Anyway, when Hallie was in the eighth grade, she would say, Mom, I, I don't have any friends, and I nobody likes me. And I sit all by myself at the cafeteria, and I thought, that is not right. She has a ton of friends. They spend the night over here all the time. She's invited to put things all, I, I'm like, that doesn't, is she being, again, is she being a, an emotional teenager? Is she being um, like hyperbole? Is, it, is that is it like you were talking about earlier with her father? Again, you would think that I would be able to know exactly what that what she was saying to me. And again, I didn't know what she would. I didn't know. I didn't know what I didn't know, believe it or not. And so I thought, well, I'm going to see if she's sitting all by herself in the cafeteria. So I went and volunteered at the cafeteria. 
and I'm watching her and she's got 20 people, 20 of her friends sitting around her and they're all laughing and joking. So I'm thinking, yeah, she's exaggerating. It, you know, she, I don't know what her problem is, but no, she, she has tons of friends. And then I, and then I, I, I certainly, I have, um, I've come to realize that it didn't matter what I thought. What I thought was irrelevant. It's what she thought. And she thought she had no friends. She thought that she was um, uh, alone and isolated. And she started listening to very melancholy music and she started sleeping a lot, which that is also the language of depression, that, that behavioral, those behavioral signs. And um, she said, I, I miss my daddy. And she would say that a lot. And um, I, uh, I, I was accepted into law school in 2004. And I had two weeks of law school. And I'll never forget what I was doing. I was reading research and writing, legal research and writing. And um, I got the word that Hallie, who was 14 years old, had taken her life. And um, I'm telling you that... I, I thought I knew pain until I lost my daughter. And that is a, a, a pain there. There is no comparison. And uh, I, um, I had to withdraw from school. And again, I went through depression, clearly. And, but I had, the, the good news was, is that I had a team already in place. I had a therapist I had already been seeing for at least nine years. And uh, so I had that support. And I had friends who, who, who came in and, and supported me, supported my girls. And I had married this incredible guy uh, two years before Hallie died. And I'm so grateful for that. But I don't know how I could have done it again. But there is odd is that... I remember thinking the day after Hallie died is that I remember thinking, okay, God, all right, I know I can do this. If I was able to make it through Danny's suicide and death, then I do know that I'm going to be able to make it through Hallie's. And uh, nine months after she died, the law school started calling me and they said, um, are you going to come back? Because if you're not going to come back, we, we need to fill your spot. They held it for me. And I, I went to my therapist and I said, you know, I don't think I can do this. I can hardly concentrate from minute to minute because grief causes a brownout in the brain. And you might be able to talk to, about that a little bit more, but it really does that, that grief your brain just t tries to take care of you the best way it can. And oftentimes I remember thinking, I'm, I'm going crazy. I'm crazy. And my therapist was like, no, you're not going crazy. This is exactly the way you should feel when you've just lost your daughter. You're, and, and that to me was so comforting because I really truly thought uh, I'm losing my mind. But she reassured me. And so when I went to her after the law school called, I, I went to her and I said, I don't think I can do this. I, I, I don't think I have it in me to be able to go through and do the requirements that law school is going to require and she said I'm going to tell you something she said uh, it's not my job to tell my my clients my patients what to do but she said I'm going to tell you right now I'm going to tell you you're going to go to law school and she said you're going to take that one semester at a time 
And she said, and you're going to take the next semester and the next semester. And she said, and when you walk across that stage in three years and get that diploma, you will know there is nothing you can't do. And, you know, she was exactly right. So when I was able to get through law school while I was grieving my daughter and um, I was able to get my JD and get that law degree, I just thought, she's right. I can do it. I can do anything if I can do that. I've heard you talk before uh, on another interview that this is the most complicated death to grieve. Can you describe that and what that means to you? Suicide is the most complicated death to grieve because there's only one person who you can um, you can be angry at because oftentimes when someone dies by suicide you don't want to be angry at the person who has died so who are you going to be angry at you're going to be angry at yourself it becomes very personal you start to think why didn't i do this why how how come i didn't answer that text message how come I didn't answer that phone? It is not like if someone um, dies, God forbid, from cancer, at least you can be angry at the cancer. Or if someone dies in a car accident, then you have an explanation. Well, the road may have been slippery and, and hydroplaned. And ran, there, there are other things you can direct your anger at. And so with a with a suicidal death, you just don't want to be angry at the person who's gone, even though there is a lot of anger when someone dies by suicide. You just cannot, you cannot understand and wrap your mind around why someone sem seemingly chooses to die. And what I have learned is that it's not necessarily someone's choosing to die. It's just that they are in so much pain or they are not thinking clearly or they're impulsive for whatever reason and it's really not about me it's not about me but it was take took me a long time to figure out that it really wasn't about me and so much of that too is that feeling of a lack of control when you lose somebody to suicide um it can be tempting to look at your own actions because oh, if it's just because I didn't answer that one phone call or if I wasn't there enough for them that one time, maybe they'd still be alive. That gives us a false sense of control that we could control that and keep it from happening. And unfortunately, that's not the case. It's not, it's not that simple. And we don't have as much power as we wish we had. Boy, that's exactly right. And you know, it's funny because it, after Hallie died, I thought to myself, what is wrong with you, Terry? Everybody around you keeps killing themselves. So I thought, some, I'm, I'm not lovable. Nobody wants to be around me. I mean, it, all of these thoughts came into my head. And it, it, was, it, it was just very difficult to accept and, and to let go of some of that responsibility, that that responsibility, I was taking way too much responsibility for their deaths. And, um, you know, 
And like I said, uh, I had to let the whys go because we want the answer. Why did this happen? Why? Why, why, why? And um, there was a uh, death in the DA's office, uh, Dallas County DA's office. And uh, John Crusoe asked me to speak to the office. And and that is one of the things I said to him. I said, you're going to want to know why this happened. Everyone loved this prosecutor. Defense bar loved him. Judges loved him. Everybody loved this guy. Exceptional, exceptional person. And, you know, I just said, the only person who can answer that question is not here. And so you have to let go of the whys or you will torment yourself. Dallas PD, we just recently, recently, within the last few months, lost two officers uh, by suicide. I'm so and sorry. there is, yeah, there's a lot of questions and whys. Yeah, uh, it's inevitable. How did that look for your, uh, the recovery look for your daughters or her sisters? The way I describe it is the, when you've got a traumatic event that happens like this, People may be beforehand, you know, people may be just going down, um, you know, the road and, and, you know, doing their school thing and doing their friends thing and their sports things. And then you've got this traumatic event uh, and death and public, public death like their father. Uh, It made news all over the state of Texas. And so when you've got that event, it's almost as if that car is it does a, a right turn. It is just screeches off the road. Their lives completely just completely change. And, and it takes a long time, at least for, for my family, it takes a long time for, for that them to get back on that road. And they have. Now they've gone through an incredible amount of work and and really difficult life events themselves. Uh, to get to where they're going now, but they are now in their 30s, uh, and they are, they're doing really well. I'm so, uh, but you know, it's funny, because people will say, well, how are you, Terry? How, how are you today? And I'll think, okay, how, are, how is daughter one? How's daughter two? How's daughter three? Well, they're fine today. I'm doing fine, because that's what I, that's how I would judge how I was doing, is basically, are all my kids okay? Or are the on they are they on the brink of death? Because I've I've almost lost uh, a few of them, but pray you know thank God it's uh, they they're doing pretty well. And I and may I say something? Sure. And you 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 do with this what you want. Okay. One of the things that I have learned is that when a parent dies by suicide, the odds of a child following in that parents footsteps increases thousands percentage points it is the odds are increased dramatically because as has been explained to me that when a parent dies by suicide it provides an option that a child may not have considered that they would walk through they walk through a door that that parent opened I had a therapist tell me one time when a one of her her uh, patients uh, was an adult and wanted said I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna kill myself and she said well I want to ask you a question how would you feel if your 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 child came to you and said I'm, I'm gonna kill myself so well, I'd be mortified and, he, and she said well I'm gonna tell you that if you kill yourself 
It is like you wrapping up a present and putting a note in that present. And when you die, it's that child opens that present and that, and that, that note says, I now give you permission to kill yourself. It is that powerful, that draw, that, that example that a parent sets for a child. And I understand that it's not the same for a sibling or, um, you know, a friend, even though it's very powerful, but for that parent to die by suicide, their ch- the odds of their child following in the in their footstep go, step footsteps goes up considerably. Well, that's because the the parent is the the teacher, the nurturer, and and they use that as an option to escape their pain. And then the child can use that as an example if they get to that point. Right. Exactly. I'm going to go back and you get into law school, you get into, you start your firm. Can you, can you talk about your firm? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a solo practitioner. I'm a criminal defense attorney. And, you know, it's funny because like I said, I always wanted to be a prosecutor because I marry prosecutors. My second husband is a prosecutor. And, uh, but because of the, you know, my life situation, I just thought, well, the only way I can practice criminal laws, I've opened up my own, um, practice and you know it's funny how how life works because it's been a perfect match because most of my clients most of them not all of them but most of my clients are first-time offenders and they have come in in contact with law enforcement because of a mental health or substance use issue oftentimes um i once i get uh once i'm I'm retained to hire uh, to represent them. Then I and I believe this: sick people don't belong in jail. That if you can treat the underlying uh, condition, then they may never offend again, or they will uh, be productive citizens. They truly, it's just, it's it's amazing how many of my clients are are wonderful people who've had a mental health crisis that have landed them in in the in the county jails and so i'm so thankful that the dallas county district attorney's office has a very very strong mental health division and i applaud the uh, cruzo and his his team i work very closely with them because i'm looking for a solution i don't believe they need to be punished they don't need to go to prison i mean they if you if they if they are on board and they treat their illness they treat their condition medical condition and they they are willing to do what is required of them then they can then move on with their life. And I'm telling you, I have done this many, many times, and I'm going to knock on wood that the clients that I have represented through the, the mental health division of the district attorney's office have gone on to lead a very productive, healthy life. And the criminal justice system has not seen them again, nor have we had, had to to occupy jail space for these people who don't they just didn't need to be there i'm, I'm going to segue into your you have a platform mm-hmm. that you use and i've talked to other uh we have lawyers line and gorski i'm sure you know them very well and when your name is brought up people say oh the 
the mental health. Uh, she's a mental health lawyer. She's into being an advocate for mental health. That stems from your long history of tragedy and seeing it, seeing that show right before your eyes and you experiencing your family experiencing it. How do you, what is your mission now as far as going out and spreading messages? This is doing this show here is, is, is one way you do it, but what is your mission? You're, you have a career, but also you have another, a new why. Can you tell us about that? There has to be purpose for the suffering. There has to be purpose for that incredible pain that losing a child and it, it is. I, and so, I mean, I, that, that's, I just thought this can't be it. So I happened to meet this man who was speaking at, a, at, a, at an event, a suicide prevention uh, event, big fundraiser. And I was the MC of this event, and what I often like to do is interview uh, the, the people I'm going to introduce so I can uh, know what to say about them. And I want to hear a little bit about their story. When uh, I met this guy, his name is Kevin Hines, and there's a documentary r- about him. He's written a book now. Uh, the bottom line is that he, 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 he jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge when he was 17 years old. And when he got through telling me his story and I'm like, Kevin, what were you thinking when you jumped off the golden gate bridge? You are talking to the mother of a, whose child died by suicide. Why? What were you thinking? There I go again. Tell me what's going on in your brain. He said something that completely changed the way I thought about life. He said, Terry, oftentimes when a person decides to die by suicide, they will make a pact with themselves. If this happens today, I won't die today, may die tomorrow, but I won't die today. And he said that day that he jumped off the bridge, he said uh, the pact that he made with himself is if one person asks me, are you okay? He wouldn't jump. And he told me about his in- his entire day where he asked his father to drive him to the city bus so he could catch the city bus to go to the Golden Gate Bridge. And the whole way with his father, he thought, I'm, I'm never going to see my dad again. And he cried and sobbed. He's 17 years old, and he was undiagnosed bipolar, and he was thought he was a burden to his family. Here we go again, the language of depression. And he was miserable. So um, he hugs his dad, he thought, for the last time. He goes to the bus. The bus is packed. He gets on it. Uh, there's one seat in the very back and he walks all the way back there and sits down and for 10 minutes from the city bus to the, to the, to the, uh, bridge, he cries, sobs, no, not one person said, are you okay? And he said, he gets to the bridge, he's looking over the rail and the lady walks up to him and says, will you take my picture? And he thought, well, she was going to ask me if I'm, I'm okay, but she didn't. The minute he took her picture and handed her back the camera, he put his hands on that rail and he jumped. And he said, the minute he jumped, he regretted it. Please, God, don't let me die. I don't want to die. And he said, in the four seconds it took him to hit that water, he thought the saddest thing was is that I'm going to die and my family will never know that I wanted to live. And when I speak to teenagers, I tell them that he regretted it the minute he jumped. And he, he crushed his, his back he couldn't get to the surface. He thought he was going to drown. He uh, he was able to get a big gulp of air, and then he felt something bumping up against his hip, and it, he thought, I'm going to die by a shark attack in the San Francisco Bay, and it was a sea lion that kept him above the water until he could be rescued. 
And he was one of 43 people to ever uh, survive jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. And he tells a story. And I went, oh, my gosh. We have got to stop minding our own business. I said, we have, I thought, if one person had asked him that, but everybody minded their own business. I mean, in this country, it's like, mind your own business. Don't tell me how to raise my kids. Don't tell me when to wear a mask. Don't tell me uh, when not to wear a mask. I mean, it's just like, mind your own business. And I'm thinking, but when it comes to this, when someone is struggling, we've got to stop minding our own business. So I started an initiative. Uh, of t- teaching people what to do and how to say it. And it's we can all say, are you okay? That's not threatening. And then really teaching people to say, hey, are you thinking of hurting yourself? Are you are thinking of going away? Are you thinking of, of going to sleep and never waking up again? Those are questions that when a person is struggling may actually relieve that suicidal ideation pressure. And we want people to pause because you're validating someone's feelings. And, you know, I know it because I've done it and it has worked. I've had people tell me, in fact, I had a client who uh, was picked up in uh, possession of controlled substance felony. And she was in the mental health uh, section of the jail. And she's like, you got to get me out of here. And her eyes were bouncing all over her head. I'll never forget this. And um, I said, are you thinking of hurting yourself? She said, no, but I have this horrible anxiety disorder and you've got to get me out of here. And I said, have you ever tried to harm yourself? She said, yes, I I have. I said, are you thinking of harming yourself? Are you thinking of killing yourself? And she said, no. And I said, so you don't have a plan because that's another thing you can ask. She said, no, I don't, but you got to get me out of here. Well, got her out reduced her uh got her her felony reduced to misdemeanor and right before the plea there's a defense room right off the courts and she and i were there just the two of us and she said very quietly i'm so sorry what's happened to you and i said well what do you mean and she said well i googled you and she said uh i know what's happened to you and i'm really sorry and she said but I now know why you're my lawyer, because if you hadn't asked me those questions, I would have killed myself in that jail. So it's so important to ask the question. You never know if one person you can help by asking those questions. That's absolutely true. And I can't even tell you the number of therapists, people who are trained mental health professionals who um, think that it might cause harm to ask somebody directly if they are suicidal, if they're thinking of ending their lives. And there is no evidence that that is true. Um, If somebody is considering suicide, if someone is considering ending their life, you're not going to put the idea in their heads by asking them if they're thinking about it. Like you said, it's going to open that up and it might turn into a life-saving conversation. Exactly. Well, it may, like he, I'm glad you brought up about it him talking about Mr. Hines talking about when he jumped, he immediately regretted and was like, please don't let me die. And my parents will not know that I did not, that I wanted to live. Exactly. And I'm glad you, you expressed that, that to teenagers cause they need to hear it because you're making a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Right. Exactly. What are some of the questions, uh, and, and both, you know, everybody here jump in like whenever you're encountering somebody that you usually have, you have three questions here that I written down, you take it seriously, express love. Can you talk about some of the direct questions and why that's important? You just described it, but can you, I want to get more into that. Number one, uh, you know, we work, I work 
I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. We work in a profession that is the, can be very sad. I work in a courthouse where it's, it's, there, there's not a whole lot of good things, if you want to look at it that way, that happens in that courthouse. And there will be people cry, uh, crying in the, the hallway. And I will walk by them, and if I see someone crying, I'm going to always stop and say, are you okay? And the look they give me is one of so surprise because somebody has acknowledged them. Somebody has recognized them. And um, so, you know, there was a prosecutor. I I went into this office where there was a prosecutor sitting in there all by herself, and she was looking at her phone. She was crying. And my, my initial reaction was to step out of that office and give her her privacy. And then I thought, well, Terry, you're the one who always says, stop minding your own business. Go in and ask the questions. And I said, are you, are you okay? And she said, no. And I thought, okay, got to ask the next question. I said, well, do you want to talk about it? And she said, no. And I said, okay. Then I stepped back out of it and let her have her privacy but one of the things you can do is ask are you okay and then if someone says no i'm not okay or if you know if your gut is screaming at you that someone is not okay then you pursue that that next question and approach with love not judgment and just say this is what i'm seeing and i'm really concerned and i care about you and uh you're my friend or you're my colleague and i just things are not the same things aren't right i'm seeing this is what i'm seeing are you thinking of harming yourself and and you're exactly right it is a myth that's what i have learned is it's a myth when you you won't plant the idea in their head they're already thinking it oftentimes and then you ask do you have a plan and they'll oftentimes tell you yeah i have a plan is it a way of like this it disarming them in a way and then making them really think about the thoughts well i think what it is 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 validating their pain and if you think about suicidal uh crisis like a balloon and as that that cry that that crisis increases 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 it's like that balloon's filling up and filling up and filling up with more air and you you don't want it to pop and so by asking those questions, sometimes it releases some of that air out of that balloon and it relieves some of that, that crisis pressure that, that that person is feeling because you are validating those feelings. And sometimes that just f- feeling like they're not alone, that somebody cares about them, that, that they can get through this because that's one of the things you can say, hey, we can get through this. And there are, you know, there are for lawyers, there is a Texas Lawyers Assistance Program that can help lawyers. Uh, there's 911, there's 988, which is the new number, of course, and, um, you know, or call family or, you know, and I, people will say, well, I don't want them to be mad at me if I call 911. Well, better mad than dead is the way I say it. I'm so happy to hear about your foundation, Terry, the uh, Stop uh, stop Minding Your Own Business. Uh, it reminds me of the program that we've started back in June, our Checkpoint program, uh, where basically it consists of informer leaders of our department reaching out to our officers who have um, responded to critical incidents. And it's just a very simple, hey, we uh, I see that you responded to a really tough call how are you? How are you doing? You want to talk about it? 
and just something so simple and opening that door and normalizing the conversation of mental health and how are you feeling and just it's okay to talk about it I know has made a huge difference in our department that is fantastic that is so good I'm really glad to hear that because you're right it will make all the difference in the world saves lives it costs nothing exactly and it makes us all better people it truly does. One of the ways you can, the best thing you can do for yourself is to, is to be a service to other people and to reach out to other people. And uh, I'm, it 100% benefits you as a human being more than even the other person by Absolutely. reaching out. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear that. You sit on so many boards and for this mission and Grace Loncar, can you talk about that? I can. Okay. I, I I think I'm I'm close enough to the family that I I I know they would be very happy for me to to share about the Grace Longcar Foundation and you know what that what what that's all about because of course again it was a very very public uh, death. Grace Longcar is the daughter of my very good friend Sue and Brian Longcar. Brian Longcar was a, a very high profile attorney here in, in really in the state of Texas, but in Dallas. And um, uh, she, uh, Grace was 16 years old and took her life in their home. And uh, just five days later, Brian Longcar um, died of a, um, basically an overdose. Um, his heart, he just basically exploded. I know his, he died of a broken heart is what I really think is what happened with Brian. And, um, uh, and so, uh, Sue, who is my friend and her children started a foundation called the Grace Longcar Foundation. Again, it is to raise awareness and, uh, prevention for teenagers and to, um, help educate parents etc on what to look for the signs to to look for and to and to provide support for teens and their family and really it's uh, suicide is a very very preventable death and the best way to prevent it is early detection just like with breast cancer just like with any any illness if the earlier you catch it the better off you you have uh, to treat it and same with mental health issues depression whatever and and suicide is a very preventable death and but we got to catch it early so that's really the the goal of the grace Longcar foundation is again to raise the awareness to talk about it to to destigmatize it it's not shameful for people to be sick it is um treatable and we need to completely eradicate the 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 shame and in fact i believe our stories are everything and when we tell our story our stories are like keys that unlock someone else's hell i've had people come up to me after i i speak to groups and they'll say you know terry uh for example this lady said i my dad died uh 40 uh, 40 years ago and um every day I, if, if anyone ever asked, I would tell, tell them my dad died of a heart attack until today, after you got through telling your story and you were sharing about your own experience in, in recovery. And she said, and today was the first day that I told colleagues that my dad died by suicide. And she said, your story set me free. 
And we can do that. We all have a story. And it's really important to share that. That reminds me of the quote that says, shame dies when stories are told in safe spaces. I love that. I'm stealing it. Thank you. (laughs) There are power in stories. There's power in struggle and redemption and recovery. I want to wrap this up, but I want to give you the form to leave one final message for our listeners on what they can do to help their family, help themselves, and help anybody around them understand what this mission is? Um, I have to say, before we wrap up, that uh, I, I am a person of faith. And I have would not I don't believe that I could be sitting here with you all and doing what I'm doing if I didn't have a source of strength. And I after Hallie died, I just said, God, I don't know what this is all about. Just use me. And so that's that's that I feel almost a privilege of being able to do what I do and how important it is because I don't want anyone to ever have to experience this amount of pain. And my message is this, that we can eradicate suicide. It is a, it is absolutely treatable. Depression is, we can, um, we can catch it. We can catch depression early not all suicides are depression related but most of them are and i think that what we can do by uh, helping our fellow person is by being compassionate and just re- reaching out to them and being aware and be willing to step into their their life and make a difference by just validating them and, and it's so important just to stop minding your own business Terry, I do have one one question for you. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about Haley, some of her favorite things, oh, who she I, was? I'd love that. Thank you for asking. And you don't know how important that is because truly you live, she's, she's with me all that she's not gone. And a lot of parent, a lot of people are afraid to say, to, to ask about the dead child don't want to talk about it because they're afraid they're going to cause pain no it's like a it's like a warm blanket of comfort and joy when I hear my daughter's name I always say say their name Hallie it's just so wonderful Hallie was a beautiful child she and I were so close she would cry when she she'd say mommy I can't I was crying and I was crying in school because I missed you so much. I mean, we were that close. She was my baby. Everybody loved this little girl. She was smart, so smart. And people really did like her. She was a uh, a good athlete. She, her grades were so great that, in fact, I worried that, that she put too much pressure on herself because she, she wanted to make sure she made all A's, you know. She, but she just was uh, a a fabulous girl. She had a great sense of humor. She, um, oh my gosh, she was just the apple of everybody's eye. I mean, my parents, they were devastated when we lost her because she just was the, she was just so special. But, you know, I, I, I thank you for asking about that because, uh, 
you know, one of the, a parent's biggest fear is that people will move on and they will forget your child. So thank you for asking. Hey brother, hey sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey Mrs. Hey Mr. I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far the sun and the moon, I'll never give up on you. I'll never give up on you.